Well, good morning, and this is uh, a unique experience for me, and uh, it's a little bit of a, um, a trial, so you're going to have to give us a little bit of grace, because we may mess things up uh, once in a while, or not do it the way that, uh, that even we had planned to, but it's good to be here. And I'm so glad you can join me this morning, and join us this morning in this time together. And I want to uh, share God's word with you. I want us to think about what it is that we, we need to be thinking about on a day like today. Um, I'm so grateful for the, the leadership team here at North Point and their willingness to go ahead this morning and uh, while being very cautious about the context of the day. The scriptures tell, call us to be wise, not controlled by fear. So it makes sense that during this time of fear, frankly, <laughs> almost panic, if you consider the nonsensical run on toilet paper, that we not act out of fear, but we act out of wisdom. A pastor, a friend of mine, uh, Bryce Ashland Mayo, wrote a prayer for these days. And I'd like us to, to start with this prayer. It, it very aptly helps balance the uncertainty of our days with the steadfastness of God. Let me read it and pray it for us today. Gracious Father, we come to you as people in the midst of a crisis. If we're honest, our hearts are filled with fear and uncertainty for our culture and our future. We're scared for ourselves, our families, our friends, our church, our community, and our world. We honestly don't know what to do and how to respond. The illusion that we are in control of our world is shattering under the weight of this reality. Although fear in itself is not a bad thing, we reject any spirit of fear that begins to take root in our lives and causes us to act with ambivalence to our neighbors, hoarding of resources for ourselves or reactive decisions. Instead, we profess Jesus as Lord and as such love our enemies, give generously to those in need and respond to circumstances and situations with faith and peace. In the midst of this unique and challenging session and season, we recognize Jesus as our savior, our sanctifier, our healer and our coming king. Because Jesus is our Savior, we know that in Christ we have an eternal hope, and therefore the fear of sickness and death is overshadowed by our hope in Jesus. As a result, we enter into our future with an eternal hope that is secure and that no virus can threaten or pandemic extinguish. Because Jesus is our sanctifier, we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to love our neighbors and live in, light, in right relationship with them. As a result, empower us to care for the sick and the vulnerable, to give to the needy, even at personal cost to us, and to grieve with those who grieve. This is a time for a love that is sacrificial and practical. Empower us to be a church that, like a city on a hill, beams the light, love, and hope of Jesus to a world covered under a shadow of sickness and death. Because Jesus is our healer, we pray and care for the sick among us. For those of us who are sick or will become sick, we pray for healing and trust in your loving embrace as the great physician and the good shepherd. We pray for your healing in people's lives. For those who are grieving, we grieve with them and proclaim the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus is our coming king, this pandemic will not win. We know that the end of the story, what the end of the story is, and Jesus has full and complete victory over sin and death, and we wait with expectation and hope for Jesus, King Jesus' return. As we are reminded of the fragility of life, we embrace the truth that our future is certain and, that, and in the hands of a living hope, Jesus Christ himself. We pray also for our world and those who lead it. 
We pray for our government and health professionals who are making important decisions on our behalf. This is a time to pray earnestly for them, and we do so with hope. Give them the wisdom to steward resources and strength to preserve, per persevere. We also pray for the safety of the many health professionals who enter into a microorganism war zone to care for the sick and the dying. Give them wisdom, strength, compassion, and safety as they care for the sick among us. In all of this, we confess that we are overwhelmed, fearful, and deeply worried. We profess Jesus as Lord, so give us strength, give us your peace as we profess you as our Savior, our Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Give us your wisdom and strength as you empower us to love you fully and to love others freely. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I thank Bryce for these great words. You know, the scriptures too have great words and truths for us in the middle of life's uncertainties. Actually, the Bible gives us some great examples of how we are to act and react when, when the rest of the world is actually panicking. The one I would like to discuss today, the one story I'd like to discuss today, comes from the book of Daniel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1. Now, while you're doing that, I want to tell you about another little book. It's the best-selling book in North America a couple years ago. It's this little book called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. It's just this little manual written in quite a factual tone based on interviews with experts in a variety of fields. And at one point, it reached number one bestseller selling status as a nonfiction paperback book. It has these little chapters, little sections, and, and they address things like, how do you escape from quicksand is one of the chapters, or how do you jump from a building into a dumpster, or how to, how to perform a tracheotomy, or what do you do if your parachute doesn't open? Those are the kinds of chapters. And, and this has sold over a million copies. Now, some of the advice is quite predictable, like in, in the part that has to do with how do you deal with a charging bull. The number one rule is don't antagonize the bull. Well, that seems fairly obvious. Um, I, I do have to admit, however, that I really don't know how to antagonize or not antagonize a bull. I'm sure he's not really all, of, all that offended if I say, you're a stupid bull, but one ever knows. Anyway, it says, don't antagonize the bull. So the authors in this book say in their introduction to this book, this, it says this, the principle behind this book is a simple one. Simple one. You just never know. You never really know what curves life will throw at you, what is lurking around the corner. You never really know when you might be called upon to choose life or death with your actions. But when you're called, you need to know what to do. That's why this book is written. So this morning, we're going to study together another kind of worst case scenario and see how real life people, ordinary people like you and me, responded in this real life scenario. Because you never know what curves life will throw at you. When you're called to be chosen, when you're called to choose either life or death. But when you are called, and you will be called, you need to know what to do. That's why this book, the Bible, was written. So look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read the text. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other professional, the provincial officials to come to the declaration or dedication 
of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other professional officials, uh, provincial officials, assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald proudly, loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples and nations of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, harp, lyre, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples and all the nations and nations of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's stop there for a moment. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that at the end of the second chapter of Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be on the very verge of becoming a servant of the God of Israel. I mean, remember, Daniel was the only one who could tell Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamed and what the meaning of it was, and it included the assurance of this coming judgment of God. And at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar says, Surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But now it turns out that Nebuchadnezzar has a very selective memory of Daniel's message. He conveniently forgets the part about God making a living stone that will one day destroy the image in his dream, will fill the earth and overcome all of earth's kingdoms, the coming of the kingdom of God. Daniel's message of God's shattering, shattering judgment. But apparently, he does remember that he is the head of gold in the dream statue. And apparently he thinks about how the kingdom is vulnerable because he was told in the dream that it stands on iron and clay, diverse elements that don't mix and make his kingdom vulnerable. So now he needs, we need to understand the context here. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create a society of captured peoples from, from different nations and languages and cultures and so on. He's dealing with what we talk about in our day as multiculturalism. We sometimes act like we're the first ones to ever face a situation like this, but we're not. Nebuchadnezzar faced it a long time ago, and he decides that what all these diverse cultures and peoples need in Babylon is unity, something that will hold them together so his kingdom is not so vulnerable and split apart by all these factions. So how better to create uh, unity than to form a common religion? So he makes a statue. Now, what the statue stands for or what the god here is, is left, I think, deliberately quite vague. Because this is not so much about religion as it is about politics and power. That's what this story is really about. So he's going to create some oneness. And he invests a lot of effort into motivating the people to go along with this. First of all, it's a remarkable statue. We're told that it's 90 feet high and made of gold. It's, it's of immense value. And then he has this music performed by all these instruments, every instrument he can think of. That's why there's such a long list that keeps getting repeated in the text. I mean, this would be an impressive kind of thing. The people are told to make a pilgrimage out to the plain of Dura, which is just outside the city of Babylon. And there they'll see this most impressive gathering of leaders from all the people's and all the cultures that have ever been assembled in that day and age. Again, that's why the writer has these long lists that are repeated, this, this emphasis that, that this is something unique and special, and it touches lots and lots of people. And if all of that is not enough to compel the people to bow down, Nebuchadnezzar decreed that failure to comply 
meant that you'd be uh, thrown into a burning furnace and burned alive. Now, picture this moment. There's this vast assembly of countless people from all kinds of tribes and countries. They've never seen anything like this. I suppose it would be a little like the opening of the, the ceremony, open ceremony of the Olympics, except that to add to that is this transcendent religious experience. And then the music starts, and the people are highly motivated to bow down. Um, and actually, a literal translation of verse 7 in the text would be, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. That's the literal translation of that text. It's like a race to see who hits the ground first. But then, through the crowd, there's this ripple of noise. It's quiet at first, but it was eventually heard over the sound of the music. Finally, nobody's looking at the statue anymore because at the front of the throng, three of the highest-ranking officials in the country are still standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, everyone else is on the ground. In the midst of a groveling nation and an act that looks like either monumental courage or suicidal folly, they refuse to bend their knee before the statue. They refuse to bow their heads. Nobody has much doubt about what will happen next. I mean, for these people had powerful enemies. Look, at, look with me at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And the word denounced here could be translated slandered. And it's intended by the writer to convey intense hostility. These bureaucrats have been placed under Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the previous chapter, and they're consumed with jealousy. So this now is their chance to bring them down. Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I want to pause here for a moment to just consider this question. Nebuchadnezzar asked this question, what God will be able to deliver you from my hand? By the way, this falls into the category of a rhetorical question. When a speaker asks a rhetorical question, he or she is not actually looking for information. They're actually just trying to make a point. Par parents love asking rhetorical questions. In fact, I think sometimes us as parents, our favorite questions are rhetorical questions. Number one favorite question of a parent, do you want to get a spanking? <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. They're not really not looking for information. No child says, well, I was really going to play Xbox, but okay, a spanking sounds like a good idea to me. It's a rhetorical question. So when Nebuchadnezzar asks, what God can deliver you from my hand? He's not looking for information. He's not looking for a name. He's just saying, you better understand. You're right here, friends, and there's no escape. There's no way out. You're in my hands. You obey me or else. But much to his surprise, these men don't treat this as a rhetorical question at all. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will, and he will rescue us from your, your hand, O king. Now I want to pause here again for a moment. Because this is a statement of remarkable faith. 
Our God is able to save us from the furnace. He is able to rescue us from danger. He's able to deliver us even from your hand, O king. Our God is able. As followers of God, it makes sense to spend quality time reflecting on stories that teach this one truth. The God you and I serve, our God is able. Our God is able. Our lives, if you think about it, should simply reflect this simple truth. The God we serve is able. The God we serve is able to reconcile broken marriages, and he's most likely done that for marriages of people listening to me right now. The God we serve is able to liberate people from addiction, and he's done that, I'm sure, with people listening to me right now. The God we serve is able to heal damaged bodies and to enable to forgive the darkest sin. The God we serve is able to provide for the greatest of our needs, able to guide with supernatural wisdom, able to inspire spiritual gifting beyond human ability in unbelievable ways, able to soften the hardest heart and able to bring the farthest runaway prodigal rebel back home. The God we serve is able, says these three men. But they don't stop there. I want us to look at another statement of Power statement, powerful statement of devotion because I think it's one of the most powerful any human being can ever make. And it's right here in this text. I want you to think for a moment of what led, led up to this moment in their lives. These are three young Hebrew men are captured and exiled in a foreign country. They give their lives to God. They serve him as best they can with formidable courage. Amazing things happen and they're promoted to positions of prominence in Babylon. And then one day, they hear about the king's edict that all the people must bow down to a, to a statue, a god of gold. And they meet together as this little community and they decide it's unthinkable that they would ever bend their knee and give their devotions to, to any god other than the god of heaven. And they must have hoped and they must have prayed that it would never actually come to this. They must have prayed that after the story of Daniel and the dream in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar would be converted and follow through in a statement about Daniel's God being the one and only true God. But that prayer wasn't answered. Surely they prayed that after this decree was made that Nebuchadnezzar would, would repent, that he'd come to his senses. But he didn't. Maybe they prayed that this decree would be enforced. It would not be enforced, they prayed. It would not be enforced. But it was. Maybe they prayed that because of Daniel's influence, the Jewish people might be excused from this. But they weren't. Or maybe they prayed that when the day came, nobody would notice when they failed to bow. Or if people noticed, they wouldn't tell. <laughs> but people noticed and people told. Not one of their prayers was answered. Not one. At every point, these three men were bitterly disappointed. At every point, this nightmare, their death, grew a little closer to reality. And now they face the worst-case scenario. They realize the door to every avenue escape has been closed to them. So they testify once more to their faith in the one they serve. In verse 16, we read, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and we, he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But now look at verse 18, because this is one of the greatest moments of devotion ever uttered by a human being. But even if he does not, think about what they're saying here. 
Don't be deceived. Our God can rescue us still, Nebuchadnezzar. The God who, who drowned Pharaoh's army, who fell Jericho's walls, who dropped Goliath with a single stone, has lost none of his strength. Our God can still rescue us. But even if he does not, we have already decided our response. We've made our, up our mind. In the face of our worst-case scenario, even if he does not, we want you to know, King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We will march to our death singing hymns of praise to the only God we will ever serve or love. Our God is able. Our God who drowned the Pharaoh's army and downed Jericho's walls and felled Goliath with a single stone and raised his son from the dead. Our God who caused you into existence and gave you life and brought you here. Our God is able. Friends, our God is able. He is able to answer your deepest prayers, to fulfill your fondest dream. But I'm here to ask you this morning, what if he does not? You know, we talk in the church a lot about being fully devoted followers. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is my full devotion from one day to the next contingent on just getting from God what I want? What about when he does not give what I want? I think of Job, who refused to dishonor God despite intense suffering, day after day with no relief and, and no explanation, who says these amazing words, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What else could I do? Where else could I go? Who else, where else could I turn? What else would I do? To whom else would I belong? Though he slay me, I will trust him. I think of Esther, who like these three men decided one day that she would confront a tyrant king for the people of God, even though it could mean her death. And she says, I will go to the king even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. A lot of people say, well, God, just answer this one prayer. Keep me safe. Grant this one request. Come through on this one dream. Oh, and then I'll serve you. I'll spend the rest of my life telling people about you. I'll do wonderful things for you. But what happens if God doesn't? Are you still willing to follow him? Are you still willing to trust him? So I'm asking you today, will you have full devotion to him even if he does not? Maybe you're in a relationship and you're really drawn, highly attracted to a person, but this person is pressuring you to cross some boundaries sexually or relationally that you shouldn't or is involved in behavior that's opposed to your deepest values. You can rationalize staying together by saying, because underneath you're afraid. I may never find someone else I'm so attracted to. I may never, I may, I may end up alone. <laughs> Listen, God is able. God is able to bring someone be far better into your life. But today I'm asking you to say, even if he does not, even if God does not bring somebody else into my life ever, even if it means facing fear and loneliness, I will not dishonor God anymore. I will not bend the knee to a relationship that I know doesn't please my Heavenly Father, even if he does not provide the way I'm asking. Maybe you're in a marriage that's disappointing to you and you've been saying, God, I know that you're able, and he is able, Today I'm asking you to say, God, even if you do not, even if my marriage is never what I dreamed it would be, I will still serve you. Maybe this involves finances. So often when it comes to material things, we focus on how God is able. He owns the cattle in the thousand hills. God is able to bring good things to us. And guess what? He is. One of my favorite stories about our finances, about an economist who saw in the verse where it says, to God, a thousand years is like a day. And he says to God, is that true? 
And the Lord says to him, yeah, that's true to me. A million years is like a second. And the economist gets kind of excited about this idea, and he says, well, then, to you, a million dollars is like a penny. And the Lord says, yes, that's true. And the economist says, well, then, Lord, could I have one of those pennies? And the Lord says, sure, just wait a second. We love to tell stories of how God is able, but what about when he says, just wait a second? What kind of devotion does your financial life reflect really? So many of the TV preachers, which, by the way, I at this moment feel like one, uh, seem to, to be so quick to tell us that if we could just give enough, then God would surely be obligated, be obligated to give back to us. Not only do the scriptures not tell us that at all, but what if God doesn't? What if you faithfully give and God doesn't ever bless you with wealth and financial well-being? Does that suddenly mean that we're not here on a Sunday morning, so you're not going to give anymore? It's conditional? Is that the idea? Or are you ready to keep on being faithful even if he doesn't? Even if we can't meet together? Where God is in the middle of a... And, when, and the question, I guess, when we have is, where is God in the middle of a, of a medical pandemic? Do we expect to be different than the, the rest of the world because God can protect us? Do we expect some kind of special protection? Or do we know that whatever's going on, God wants us to be his hands and his feet and his heart to those around us? You know our God is able. But I'm asking, will you decide in your heart, I will serve him even if he does not? Now, I don't know what this means to you. I know that personally from one day to the next, far too often the truth is that if my day goes well, if I get good news, if circumstances break just right, I'm more likely to live with joy, to be more likely to serve with a devoted spirit, to be more motivated to witness to other people, to tell them about God, to be more generous with my time and money, money because I'm being blessed. If not, even if I get a little close to the furnace, I begin to bend the knee to the gods called self-absorption and self-interest and self-pity. Because friends, ultimately the name of that, that gold statue that we're all tempted to bow down to is called me. Ultimately the name of that unnamed statue in this story is that the face, is that the human race has been bowing too long before time is simply called our me. And one day ultimately you will bow down before that statue or before God with full devotion. So today I'm asking you, I'm calling you to a higher level. Because we are called to be fully devoted followers of Christ. Because he is our model, the one we love and the one that went before us. And the day came for him once in the garden when Jesus himself, the Son of God, said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Do not make me go through this. Spare me this ultimate suffering. You are able, Father, you are able. But then he comes back and says, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. You're able to spare me, but even if you do not, I will not turn away. I will drink this cup to the last drop. And on the cross, the actions of the Son of God say to his Father, in effect, though he slays me, I will trust him. God is able. God is infinitely good. He showers us with gifts of joy and love. But I'm asking you today to decide, even when he does not, I will be his fully devoted follower. The great thing about this story, of course, is that we know how it ends. We know that these three friends get thrown into a, this fiery furnace. We know that as soon as they hit the fire, the ropes that bound them burned off. We know that they walk around comfortably in the middle of the furnace that was so hot that it literally killed the, the soldiers who threw them in. 
And we know that King Nebuchadnezzar, as he looks into the furnace and sees three, not, not three, but four people there, says that the fourth looks like the Son of God. And while that's a wonderful end to this story, it's not the end to every story. And it's not the end to many of our stories. Instead, while we know he is able, you and I are called to stand true, even if he doesn't come through the way we want him to. So where are you today? Is your service to God a service of conditions? If God treats me right, if he protects me, if he meets my needs, if he looks after my family, if he answers my prayers, oh, then just maybe, maybe I'll be faithful to him. Is that where you are? God is calling you and me today to have a faith that's bigger than that. Faith that simply says, even if he doesn't, I will serve him. And that's, that's the relationship of God I call you to today. I invite you to make that choice, whatever the cost, whatever the outcome, regardless of whether or not God gives you what you think you want or need. This is the time for us to be the people of God. I'm calling you to simply commit yourself to the truth that even if he does not, even if my family's not spared from this pandemic, even if I, things don't go the way I want, even if my job doesn't turn out, even if I don't get paid for the days I have to be away from work, I will serve God anyway. Will you? Is there any area in your life where you've been holding back full devotion? Is there any place where fear or disappointment or hurt or sin has been keeping you from following him with utter abandon, with utter trust? Have you been bending your knee to anyone or any place else? I think that times like this call us as the people of God to a new level of commitment, a new level of love for the people around us, a, a new level of, of patience for the people in the line who are, who are being ignorant or rude, people who, who are... are our neighbors and live around us, people who are sick, who need us to risk ourselves to care for them. God may be calling us to a new day in the life of the church, a day where we become the hands and the heart and the feet and the mind of Jesus Christ to a community that has, has long been moving away from being Christ-aware and Christ-caring. We have an opportunity during this day to be the church, to be the people of God, to a hurt, to a lost, to a dying world in a whole new way. We've been calling the world that for a long time, but today we have an opportunity to be the people of God in a brand new way. Will you step up to the challenge? Will you say, God, even if I'm not protected from all this, even if you don't, I still will follow you. No matter how close to the furnace it gets, I still will follow you. That's my call to you today. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we confess that as your church and as your people, we have often not done a good job of being your hands and your feet and your heart to this world. And now, during this time, we have an opportunity to be that in a unique way. So Lord, I pray that each person who, in each, each Christ follower in these days would, would come to you with a whole new sense of commitment and a sense of care for the people around us. Lord, make us aware of, of neighbors and around us who need a little extra of our care. Make, make us aware of, of the not the need to, to hoard and to, to hold to ourselves, but rather to be generous people. 
Lord, help us to live your, the Christ life in us every day. So God, and direct us. Lord, we do ask. We ask for protection. We ask for health. We ask for you to watch over and guide us, but we also ask for wisdom that you would help us to day by day and moment by moment be fully yours in all we do. We're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the chance we have to meet together in this way. And we pray that you would just walk with us moment by moment, day by day. We'll give you all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory and honor. Amen. And it's not really the worst case scenario.